0: On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation, harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Learn how their grantees are helping to address the coronavirus crisis at templeton.org.
1: The world keeps changing, and moral reckonings are being driven to the surface of our life together. Who will we be to each other in our communities, our nations, our globalized world? What are politics for? What is an economy for, and education and healthcare, and borders? Jacqueline Novogratz is a voice I respect on the inadequacy of the simplistic ways we take up such questions, if we take them up at all, the necessity of moral imagination and the cultivation of character alongside all of the so-called hard skills that are no longer serving us. This is at the heart of her book, Manifesto for a Moral Revolution, Practices to Build a Better World. It feels important to me in a moment like this to look below the radar of rupture, to see models and practices that work and that in fact can take up the huge hard problems. Acumen, which Jacqueline Novogratz founded and leads, is an exercise in creative, human-centered capitalism, a venture capital fund that serves some of the poorest people in the world, people whose incomes have previously excluded them from the power of the market.
0: I think in this moment of such peril and possibility, if we tapped into that stirring, that awakening, we really could build a world like the world has never seen before. And um, if there was ever a decade to do it, it's this decade. And this century may require that of us if we're to flourish in it, right? I think this century does require it of us. I'm not a shame person, but man, I want future generations to look back on us and say, look how hard they tried, not look at how blind they
1: were. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is on Being. Jacqueline Novogratz began her career as a traditional investment banker. While still in her 20s, she helped start the first microfinance bank in Rwanda. And Acumen helped start the field of impact investing, which so many have now entered. Jacqueline, I think you use the language of moral imagination. You're the only person I know who uses those words as much as I do. (laughs) Um, And really, moral imagination, moral revolution, moral courage. I mean, that's what we're going to talk about. Um, And so I'm just curious to start about where you would go with your earliest memory of what the word moral meant when you were growing up in the 1960s in your big Catholic Austrian immigrant military family.
0: Wow. Wow. I think the word moral for me conjures up first grade classroom of Sister Mary Theophane in West Point, (laughs) Highland Falls, New York, um, looking at a poster of a rice bowl with two hands holding it and being told by the nun um, that we had an obligation always to think about people who were less fortunate than we were. And then her mantra was that too much is given, much is expected. And I think that instilled in me in a deep and crystallized way um, that we're here for each other.
1: That's so consonant, really, with what you've walked into. You know, you and I are roughly the same age, and I'm so aware right now at this point in the young 21st century of all these echoes from the 1960s, how things have come full circle or turned out so differently than we expected they would with starting out when we did, right? So just reading. So you've written this book, um, Manifesto for a Moral Revolution, and um, you talk about you left Rwanda in 1989 for Palo Alto to go to Stanford Business School the Berlin Wall falls that year, the Soviet Union disintegrates, it's the end of history. I mean, you are a banker and you're remaking banking and capitalism has won. And you made a statement in a speech, and I believe it was at a forum for business leaders. And you said, you know, Steve Jobs spoke to your business class. And he said, we thought we needed a technological revolution, but we needed a moral revolution. And that's what you're really writing about now and steeping in. And so Just how would you start to talk about what that realization, what that phrase
0: holds for you? When I think back to that time, and it was really within the course of a month that the Berlin Wall fell, and then Jobs got on the stage and said, you know, technology will reshape the world. And both forces did. Capitalism and technology did reshape the world and did lift a billion people out of extreme poverty and at the same time, it has left us, both forces have left us more unequal, more divided, more divisive, hmm. and facing long term, not long term, short term climate catastrophe. And so when I say we need a moral revolution, it's really one that is not dictated from above, but it's a reframe of the system. Because we have had a system that has put profit at the center. And what we mm-hmm. need to do is shift that to put humanity and the earth at the center. And that is not going to come from above. That is going to come from each of us changing our ways. I think, Krista, that we're in this moment where we know our old and current institutions have run their course. Yeah. But we've not reimagined what they need to become. And so because there is no road map We can only hold on to a moral compass. And that, for me, is the beginning of the moral revolution. But we're in this,
1: we're this in-between generation that can see what's broken but has to make up the new forms. And when you say, when you point to the need for a shared moral compass, that is also the work. I mean, how in this world of proximity Mm. to difference, right, in this globalized world that, as you've pointed out, even though we were talking about it in the nineteen eighties, and the nineteen nineties, we we could not envision what it has become and what it's meant and what it's given us to reckon with. So that yeah, I think that's really what I want to talk to you about. How do we how do we start to develop a shared moral compass? And I think that's what you're working on in the spheres
0: that you're where you're engaged. When you and I were growing up. Um The world operated in separate spheres. There were rich countries, poor countries, capitalism, communism. Right. And now there's elements of the rich and the poor, of the developed and the developing in every country. And Mm -hmm. we're starting to understand, well, we need to understand that we can't just go to the polarities. We're having this broken debate. If it's not capitalism, then it's socialism. Right. Rather than one that says, how do we take the best of each move beyond ideology, focus on the problem that we want to solve, and then bring the best of us to bear on solving that problem because that will bring out the best in who we are as well. And so the skills, which I also think are not the soft skills. When I was growing up, we relegated skills like the moral imagination, like listening, like understanding identity as a tool rather than as a bludgeon, holding opposites without rejecting either side, those are the hard skills. Mm -hmm. And those are the skills we need to impart in our children, in our universities, in our workplaces, if we want to do the, the weaving and the integration that I do believe, as you said, is the work. And 20 years of investing, trying to reimagine capitalism and using those tools to invest in entrepreneurs that are first and foremost, trying to solve tough problems of poverty has taught me that the greatest predictor is not even the business idea of real success. The greatest predictor is the kind of character that holds some of those skills that I was just talking about. So Acumen, which you began
1: as the Acumen Fund, works with the poorest people in the world. I, I think it's important to articulate that what you are working on and the people all around the world who you see and engage makes this assumption or this insistence that the market and the way we live economically using capitalism's power and its tools can be part of lasting and generative social change. And it's that kind of entrepreneurship that needs character to succeed but you're also like redefining what you what we generally mean when we say succeed
0: especially in terms of entrepreneurship that's right in a in in brief it's moving away from money power fame which is the shorthand for what we're seeing around us too much today to celebrating those people who release the most human energy into the world and so when i One of the great joys of my life, particularly now because I'm seeing it more than ever, is to work with entrepreneurs who aren't cowed by this idea that if they're not making a lot of money, they are not as successful as other entrepreneurs or they are not as real, Hmm. Um, in part because some of them uh, are making enormous change. I think of um, Ned Tozen and Sam Goldman who— had the audacity in 2007 to say, we want to eradicate kerosene from the earth. It's been 130 years since Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. 1.5 billion people have no access to electricity. No one else is solving it. We certainly aren't solving it in the same old, same old ways of separation, either charity on one hand or traditional investment on the other. So let's go after solving this problem. Let's look at the poor as our customers. Let's try to understand from their perspective the moral imagination. Let's build something that's affordable, that's beautiful, that's useful, that lasts. Let's figure out how to finance it. A traditional capitalist would say, too hard. And for five, six, seven years, we weren't sure whether this company was going to make it. But a couple of weeks ago, we were able to announce that Uh, They've just brought light and increasingly electricity to 100 million of the world's poor. Um, That's a big number. Mm -hmm. That's moving the needle. Mm -hmm. Um, But when I think about what has driven Sam and Ned, um, it hasn't been getting rich. It's been lighting the world. Um, And they've done it. And we need to celebrate them as role models Yes. Uh, we don't only need new business models, but we need to celebrate new role models.
1: There's a place where you say, what if the golden rule were not do unto others as you would have them do unto you, but also give more to the world than you take from it?
0: Yeah. It's such a simple rule. And again, right now when I when I see all this anger at, you know, you're a bad person because you're wealthy. Yeah. You're a fuzzy-headed nonprofit entrepreneur because you clearly don't know how to manage. We're just f- we're just screaming at each other. If we moved from a, a metric that or an ethos that recognized we're all part of this together, that we actually do face enormous changes that are going to impact all of us, and we just use that simple moral idea of giving more than we take, hmm. the whole world would change. Hmm. We literally go from thinking our, ourselves just as consumers to citizens,
1: hmm.
0: and um, and focus on sustainability rather than you know celebrating selfishness. Right. And those are the mantras I'd like to see, um, which I think this next generation wants to embrace.
1: Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today with Jacqueline Novogratz of Acumen, an incubator of human-centered capitalism. I want to talk about language before we go much further. Moral imagination has so much to do with what we see and the words we use. Um, You have chosen to continue to use the word poor but you don't speak in terms of disadvantage. I mean, would you talk to me a little bit about yeah, what what you're describing here and and the words that actually capture what you see and what this moral
0: revolution would take in differently. Yeah, I do think we need a different language, a language that gets comfortable again with what we too often look at it as soft
1: yeah.
0: and I would include love in there because I think real love is a hard skill yeah. and at the same time I get exhausted when we jump on words and again ascribe an evil characteristic to someone using that word before we even interrogate it and so when we were writing our manifesto the phrase it starts by standing with the poor was incredibly important to us and There were people on our team who were really offended by that. Why can't we say it starts by standing with low-income people? Right. It sounds demeaning. It sounds demeaning. And also, as I have come to understand poverty, I reject the notion that poverty is just about income. Mm. We've got to think about the opposite of poverty being dignity or having opportunity and choice. And so we couldn't come up with a better word than poor The other piece of it was that as investors, this pushed us toward our own bottom line, if you will, that when we look at making an investment, we have to ask ourselves, as enticing as it is in a world that still looks at you in terms of your financial returns, to say, well, these people are vulnerable, even though they're middle class. We wanted to be the organization that pushed ourselves, took on something more difficult by investing on behalf and with the truly disadvantaged, the poor. And increasingly, and I think this is something that's deepened in my own learning and our own learning, we've integrated this idea that if you care about the poor, you have no choice but to care about the climate. because in the context of climate change there is no doubt about who gets hurt most mm-hmm.
1: i think that's such an important statement that the opposite of poverty is is not wealth but dignity and you've also really in very granular ways gotten into the fact that dependence can also be an enemy of dignity and that that the language of helping people is problematic and and i think also counterintuitively in this as you say, this very stark, polarized debate about capitalism being good or evil, I mean, you've learned that the market can be a powerful listening device to poor people, in fact. That capitalism can be a humanizing way to accompany
0: the poor. What I think a lot of people don't understand, and I didn't understand, is that in a way we make a mistake by looking at poor economies, when you're looking at a community of low-income people, you're looking not at a market economy. You're looking at a political economy. And so where there is no real market, everyone has their hand in the lives of the poor. Hmm. The government officials that usually often, not usually, but often um, make low-income people pay for whatever grant or income support they're getting— the religious leaders who make a lot of decisions on their behalf, the family structures, mothers-in-laws, all of these certainly aid organizations, charities, there's mafias who control the markets in very extortive ways. And so the power of a fair marketplace where people actually can have choice and dignity over their own lives that is revolutionary and if you've not spent time in slums or in rural areas controlled by bureaucracies and the politics of poverty that can be hard to understand i feel like there's a there's a there's a sentence
1: in your in your book that to me, feels like an operating question for moral imagination. You said the question is not really how to make people better off, but what does it mean to be a whole human being? Mm.
0: And also, Krista, I'm so delighted that you said um, operational, the operating model. Mm. When I think of moral imagination, you know, we always say the humility to see the world as it is and the audacity to imagine what it could be. Yeah. But I break it down into four steps, almost that are truly operational. You know, one that it starts with empathy, but it can't end with empathy and putting yourself in another person's shoes because that too often leads to distancing and the reinforcement of the status quo. Oh, those poor people; their life must be terrible. Yeah. The second step is immersion. You know, Brian Stevenson, the civil rights advocate, would we'll call it proximity, but You have to get close to the people that you want to serve. You have to understand their problem. And the third piece is analysis. Then you have to understand the system in which they're operating. And then you have to act. And my team will say, well, Jacqueline, moral imagination isn't a verb. i like, well, (laughs) (laughs) you know, sometimes we have to just propel ourselves into action from that sense of knowing. Because in the knowing, we have a responsibility to do. Mm. And so I like to think of it both as a beautiful phrase, but also one that demands that we extend that beauty to actually make a difference rather than just imagine. Right. So it's aspirational, but it's also fiercely pragmatic. It is fiercely pragmatic. Yeah. And it's funny because people often, in fact, when we talk about polarities and holding opposites intentions, and I've had more than a couple of investors say, you know, Jacqueline, you talk about love all the time, but when it's when then it comes, we're sitting at the negotiating table and you're hardcore. Yeah. And it's like, look, we're patient capital, we're not stupid capital. Right. And that, you know, that that love actually is about caring so much that you want other people to succeed. Hmm. That is hard to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And that requires expectations and helping That requires expectations because because if we think that they're going to be, you know, yeah. That's right. Yeah. And we have to set standards high so that people live up to it because if we put low expectations on people, we all know very well that people that all yeah. of us yeah. will stoop down to them. Right. And so that's what love is. Yeah.
1: I also I feel like it, what's so odd to me when the word love gets used in public spaces and you're doing that and I'm doing that. And I, f- I, hear so, I, feel, I hear that rising up. And one reaction people have, like you're talking about these like investors, is that it's soft. But we know, each and every one of us in our actual lives, that it is the hardest thing. And it's not laissez-faire, right? The, we, The people we love the most, there's a lot it of It is the hardest engagement. thing. And
0: inside of it is yeah. another secret we don't talk about enough, which is for anyone who is caretaking someone who's been sick or who has lost someone or anyone who's accompanying someone in a real way, there are times when that love takes every ounce of courage and perseverance that you have in your body. And those are also the times when you like yourself the best. Mm. I think that is the opportunity we have right now in the world that we feel like there's such darkness around us. But we all know that it's in those times that we can elevate ourselves, if we get outside of the small parts of ourselves, which right now are being sparked mm-hmm. too right. often right. by the frankly the easy stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this
1: is this is pulling back a little bit from from this conversation we're having about this realm of entrepreneurship and leadership and economic life, which is just another way to talk about human life. But it's very resonant with how you've also looked at what's been happening in our country and in Mm -hmm. the world in these last few years. You wrote after the 2016 election, um, and I'm really, you know, this is really echoing with what you said a minute ago about the opposite of poverty is dignity. You said this was an election about dignity, about being seen, about feeling counted. It was about people who wanted their voices heard so powerfully that they were willing to overlook language and actions they would never accept in themselves or their children. And I really appreciated the place you went later in the piece where you said, and whether Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton won the election the U.S. would be staggering, wounded, and bleeding, left to wonder how we got to a place where we feel we hardly
0: know each other. Yeah. This is where I think we have an opportunity um, to build the skills of identity. Um, What worries me is I see identity too often used as a bludgeon rather than a tool and a mechanism to enhance our understanding of each other. Mm -hmm. And in that same vein, we are so focused on our own identity that we're missing the opportunity of recognizing that, yes, we need to learn about our identity and the many different component parts of our identity so that we can connect with those similar identities that exist in other people who, on the surface, may seem completely different than ourselves. And that's also a skill, and it's one that takes... A lifetime to master, but we can all start on the path. Mm-hmm. I had a great experience with the, um, I think you may have interviewed Jonathan Haidt, actually. Yes, yes. So yeah. I had a great privilege of taking John to India. And Jonathan has studied shame and marginalized peoples and, of course, how we use language. Right. What's his, t- and, what's um, his book, The Moral? The Righteous Mind. The Righteous Mind, yeah. yeah the Righteous right. Mind, so how is so yeah. spectacular. yeah. yeah. And so we do something that we took from the oral history project, StoryCorps, but instead of putting people face to face, we do something that we call story walks, because we found that when you let the air blow around people, magic can sometimes happen. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that you go walking with each other 20 minutes, um, one person talks, tells their story and the other person asks questions for 10 minutes, and then you repeat on the way back. And It's good to do it in a group. We brought the group back, and I had paired Jonathan with a guy named Vimal Kumar, who is from the scavenger caste, which is the Mm. lowest caste in India. These are people consigned to essentially picking up human waste, um, usually with some cardboard or plastic. And, um, And so then when you get back, you're supposed to introduce each other, and some do it in the first person. So John started and said, I'm introducing Vimal so I'm going to speak as Vimal and he said I'm Vimal Kumar and I was born in the scavenger caste we are the people consigned to um picking up waste and no one ever touches us and he said my mother however got a job at a private school and they allowed uh, me to go to school as a result of it but we couldn't afford a uniform I I had to go to school in rags and I sat in the back of the class and I never spoke But my mother was so proud that when I was eight years old, she invited the whole school over to have a birthday party, and she spent two days cleaning the house, preparing for it. And then on the day of the party, no one showed up. And John started uh, crying. Hmm. And he said, So I'm sorry, but I have an eight-year-old son. Hmm. And the truth is, Vimal and I don't have anything in common. He said... I am from a privileged background. I went to the best schools. I live in New York City. I'm a professor. My children have no want. And I can't even believe that Vimal has been able to survive in in the way that he's so extraordinary. And then Vimal took a deep breath and he said, no, John, you're wrong. He said, you love India. I love India. <laughs> we both have two children. We have both studied shame. He said, and besides, John, you're a Jew. You mm-hmm. understand what it feels like to have people think about you in a certain way for no reason other than what you were born. And finally, John, we both have PhDs. <laughs> 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 and, <laughs> that's good. Uh, and, you yeah. know, when you look at that, if, th- if these two could bridge that gap, mm-hmm. yeah, we in the United States— have so much in common can find our ways to Mm -hmm. heal ourselves and to see ourselves in each other again that we have a common endeavor in this country to build a country where we can make good on the promise that all men and women were created equal Um, and then we can help extend it to everyone on the planet um, because we represent the planet now in ways I have so much to teach if we would just take that privilege seriously.
1: After a short break, more with Jacqueline Novogratz. You can always listen again and hear the unedited version of every show we do on the On Being podcast feed, wherever podcasts are
0: found. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org.
1: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today we're exploring the wisdom of Jacqueline Novogratz's work and writing. She was an early innovator in the field of microfinance in Rwanda and in impact investing in the U.S. and globally. Acumen, the organization she founded and leads, has brought basic services to hundreds of millions of the world's poorest people. Jacqueline has described her recent book, Manifesto for a Moral Revolution, as a love letter to the next generation, including young acumen fellows around the world. You know, I feel like all of these practices that you have described and written about that we've been talking about, about figuring out how to be both audacious and humble, um, how to understand that you don't plan your purpose but live your way into it and ask that question of of what you're doing of carrying around beautiful questions powerful questions like what are you doing when you feel more beautiful of listening not to convince or to convert but to change yourself i mean these are these are everyday practices that can be transformative and immediately transformative and just that story you just told like this is all happening right all kinds of people all around us are making these these moves i sometimes think of this as the the generative narrative of our time that just doesn't get a light shone on it the way the dysfunctional destructive narrative of our time is so privileged and so heavily investigated And I just, you know, your work is full of these stories, of this
0: generative map that is emerging. Absolutely. And the exciting thing now, Krista, which I couldn't have said 10 years ago, is that it's not pretty language and it's not just a few people. It is a movement that is happening around the world and that the role models who are emerging are not reaching thousands of people they're reaching millions of people. In the case of a 100 million people. That mm-hmm. there's a hard edge to these scaled companies that can only exist if you bring on a different skill set that understands how to put capital in its place, how to partner with government rather than malign it, how to understand identity and build inclusive organizations, and I'm not just talking, as you said, about entrepreneurs. We need to use these same skills all of in our, our universities. Yeah, all of our disciplines. In the military. Lawyers. every discipline. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Our lawyers. Yeah. And our healthcare system yeah. um, to make it patient-centric. And that's why, you know, some, a few young people are like, well, Jacqueline, you're, you're known as the pioneer of uh, patient capital and impact investing, and yet your book is all about moral leadership. And I said, like, because at the end of the day, that's the work. I can with all respect hire really smart young people to to do spreadsheets and valuation but building a company that disrupts a system and creates a market that reaches 100 million really poor people that is a leadership play hmm. and as you also imply I'm not just talking about entrepreneurs or organization builders I'm talking about social workers and nurses and all of us. Yeah, yeah.
1: And that scale is the upside of that technological revolution that we did get, right? That is the generative possibility to be able to – that good can be amplified at such a different scale now than was true when you and I were growing
0: up. If we keep these technology and this capital in its place. Yeah. And we realize that it's up to us – To bring the moral aspect to it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I do
1: love the story you tell about, was it Felicula? Is that how you say her name? Mm. The nun, this enterprising nun who also became one of Rwanda's first three women parliamentarians. And she was such a friend and mentor and partner to you when you were so young there starting out. Would you tell the story of and she died, right? She died. Well, she was murdered. She was murdered. Yeah. And would you tell the story of how suddenly or just a few years ago her name was invoked in a new century,
0: in a new world? Yeah, um, for me in so many ways, sometimes many roads lead back to Rwanda. And it was literally thirty years almost to the month um when I first arrived in Rwanda to set up that microfinance bank and Felicula was one of three women parliamentarians um, who were among my co-founders. And she was the one I loved most. And she really kind of wrapped her arms around me and talked about crossing every line of difference and taught me so much about her country. She didn't have such a head for business, but she had a heart for the world, man. And I loved her. And um, one of the first things she and her fellow parliamentarians did, women parliamentarians did, was to eradicate bride price Few years into their tenure, and it was too quick, probably, for their constituency. And, what, and, and to explain what that meant. So Bride Price, uh, which still exists um, tr- in traditional form, was that you would—an enterprising and prospective son-in-law would would gift his prospective father-in-law three cows to marry the mm-hmm. man's daughter— and Felicula was really insulted with this idea of reducing women to chattel yeah. and wanted to change it. And so um, a few days after this law was passed, it was rescinded um, in another vote. A big backlash oh. happened. And Felicula was killed in a mysterious hit-and-run accident. And that was really the first time in my life at age 26 that I had to confront the price some people pay. hmm for rejecting the status quo. And then we went on to build this bank, and then the genocide happened, and um, the surviving women with whom I started this bank ended up playing every conceivable role, including bystander, victim, and perpetrator. Hmm. And so the bank continued to stumble along somehow in those early years after genocide. Um, And now here I am 30 years later, and I'm standing at a hotel reception with the president of the country and most of his ministers in, and in Kigali to, right in Kigali yeah. the same place and except you know I'm a much older woman <laughs> with you know wrinkles on my face to show it and I know the downsides of what this work can be and I um I'm laying out this vision for this 70 million dollar for profit off-grid energy fund that's going to help electrify the country. And before I get on stage, a young woman walks up to me and says, "Miss Novogratz, I think you knew my auntie." And I said, "Really? What was her name?" And she said, "Well, her name was Felicula." And I burst into tears. Mm. And I said, "I'm sorry. Who are you?" And she said, "My name is Monique. I'm the deputy general of the central bank." Yeah. <laughs> And I literally, still crying, I turned to the president and his ministers, and I said, "If you had told me 30 years ago, when we were starting that microfinance bank, that in one generation a woman would be running the economic sector, (laughs) the financial sector, I'm not sure we would have believed you. You know, maybe our dreams weren't big enough." And I understood in that moment that I was back in Kigali on that night to complete work that we, that Felicule had started but couldn't complete in her lifetime. And that at this point in my life, I needed to continue that work but also dream dreams so big I won't complete them in my lifetime but to enable another generation to take that work forward too. Though this little institution that we had started— endured the murder of Felicula and genocide and so many challenges, the work had continued hmm. anyway. Her work had continued. And it continues today. And that all of us stand on the work of those who went before us. Hmm. And it's really our, our individual and collective obligation in a world that focuses too much on our rights and not enough on our responsibilities. It's our collective obligation to take that work forward and imagine and then integrate human dignity, sustainability, and elevate the best of ourselves and bring ourselves to each other. And I think in this moment of such peril and possibility, if we tapped into that stirring, that awakening, we really could build a world like the world has never seen before. And um if there was ever a decade to do it it's this decade. Yeah.
1: And this century may require that of us
0: if we're to flourish in it, right? I think this century yeah. does require yeah. of us. Yeah. And and that I'm not a shame person but man I want future generations to look back <laughs> on us and say look how hard they tried. Right. Not look at how blind they were.
1: Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with Jacqueline Novogratz of Acumen, an incubator of human-centered capitalism. This is really granular, but I think really helpful. Um, uh, you describe. In the book, how you have kind of modified the Jesuit examen, examine, um, which is supposed to be five steps, and I've tried this, so I found this really useful because I never was able to stick with the five
0: steps. Five is too many. Oh, I know that's sacrilege, <laughs> but you've turned it
1: and you've turned it into three. So just talk about this because this is a a daily practice
0: that you weave into. That I try to do it every day. I don't do it every single day, but when I do do it. My day is different, and that is to start with intention. What do you want to accomplish in the day? Who do you want to be? And then check in with yourself later and ask yourself how you did. Um, Do an account. And um, what you learn from it? And then importantly, forgive yourself (laughs) for what you didn't do or what you did poorly. And then the most important part of all is to express gratitude. And when I do those those acts, um, whether you call it three or four, I feel like I'm moving and I'm also at the same time grounded.
1: One thing we haven't—one word we haven't discussed today—well, no, you've, you've mentioned accompaniment. It's an important word to you. It's an important word to me, but also as I feel it emerging all over the place— I didn't realize, it, you, you taught me this, this, is, this was also a Jesuit phrase. I it did is. not know that. Um, I want to read this beautiful, it's a couple of paragraphs from your book, but um, everything you've been talking about, this moral leadership that we are all called to, whatever our sphere, because all of our spheres have to be transformed in this way, we're not called to do it alone, which was also a 20th century lie. It was a lie. All right. So this is, is, we surround ourselves with others who can hold us and hold it, the work on the days that we can't. So anyway, you wrote, this is the secret of accompaniment. I will hold a mirror to you and show you your value, bear witness to your suffering and to your light. And over time, you will do the same for me. For within the relationship lies the promise of our shared dignity and the mutual encouragement needed to do the hard things. Whatever you aim to do, whatever problem you hope to address, remember to accompany those who are struggling, those who are left out, who lack the capabilities needed to solve their own problems. We are each other's destiny. Beneath the hard skills and firm strategic priorities needed to resolve our greatest challenges lies the soft, fertile ground of our shared humanity. In that place of hard and soft— is sustenance enough
0: to nourish the entire human family. In my way of seeing the world, I think accompaniment is so critical, and again, I think it's so hard. Um, And when you do it best is when you're not asking for thanks in return. I also, going back to this country, America, I also think, Krista, that it could be an organizing frame for how we think about a big part of our economy that we're overlooking.
1: Accompaniment um, could be an organizing frame?
0: I do. Mm-hmm. I do. I mean, I've seen it in companies in Africa and in South Asia, not just companies, in, in solutions um, where you, know, you look at the HIV crisis um, and the AIDS crisis of Southern Africa and community members were trained in showing up for people with HIV positive who had to take their antiretrovirals and um, combine that with eating high caloric food. And so the community members were trained in the rudiments of mm-hmm. healthcare, And they would show up. They would check on whether they had taken their meds, et cetera, et cetera. And they would also help stave off the isolation and loneliness that comes often with any chronic disease. And so I'm seeing a generation of young people in the United States bring home some of these models Accompaniment models, yeah. which I think, given our opioid crisis, given our incarceration crisis, given our healthcare crisis, could play an extraordinarily powerful role. Um, City Health Works, which trains women from the community in Harlem, New York, yeah. in again basic health skills, they show up and teach women who have chronic diseases like diabetes and um, hypertension simple things go to the grocery store, how to buy food, how to go on walks. Um, Not how to go to walks. They go on walks with them. They they bring them into community, and they have so reduced the number of hospital visits that they've created a revenue stream from government to the organization enough so that they can cover all their costs, become profitable. So suddenly you have an economic and social model that has at the heart of it a healthier community, a more efficient government, and a stronger civil society. Mm-hmm. That's the reframe. Mm. And so we think about accompaniment as a, as a beautiful soft skill. You and I know how hard it is, but beyond <laughs> sure. that, if we had the real moral imagination, we could begin to create economic models that made sense for all of us and not just for a chosen few of us. Yeah. Again,
1: aspirational and fiercely pragmatic. I love, <laughs> I love that. Thank you. <laughs> um, if I so, if I, if I ask you today, this week, you know, what is making you despair, and where are you finding hope? Um, what comes to mind right now? Of course, we're talking about a hard-edged hope, not a
0: squishy hope. Yeah, one of the biggest lessons in my life, Krista, has been that we we can't separate the world into monsters and angels yeah. and that there's nothing like uh, loving people and knowing friends who played different roles of the genocide including being perpetrators like having that makes you have to confront that most raw element of what it means to be human yeah. and the only conclusion I could make was that there are monsters and angels in each of us and that Those monsters really are broken parts. There are insecurities. There are fears. There are shames. And then in times of insecurity, uh, it becomes really easy for demagogues to prey on those broken parts and sometimes make us do terrible things to each other. We're seeing that all over the world right now. And we have to fight against that. And that's where the moral revolution It becomes a matter of whether we choose to dive into the the dark, the perilous path, or whether we choose to create a narrative and make that narrative real, which is our shared destiny, the possibility of collective human flourishment, our repairing and making the earth in ways that make it more beautiful. Hmm. And the choice is ours. And so my hard-edged hope comes from having lived and worked in communities that have had to contend with both. And, you know, like flowers breaking through granite, I'm going to choose hope every time. And I frankly, despite all the dark, I remain a stubborn, persistent, hard-edged, hopeful optimist. (laughs) Okay. I do. (laughs) And that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Okay.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Jacqueline. Jacqueline Novogratz is the founder and CEO of Acumen. She's the author of a memoir, The Blue Sweater Bridging the Gap Between Rich and Poor in an Interconnected World, and most recently, Manifesto for a Moral Revolution Practices to Build a Better World. The On Being Project is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Lauren Dordal. Aaron Colosaco, Kristen Lynn, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Suzette Burley, Zach Rose,
0: Siri Grassley,
1: Colleen Scheck, Christiane Wartell, Julie Seipel, and Gretchen Honold. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent production of The On Being Project. It's distributed to public radio stations by PRX. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on earth. Learn more at calliopeia.org. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at humanityunited.org, part of the Omidyar Group the Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives, and the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.